Welcome to another episode of The Rhythm of Rebellion. I'm your host, Taina Asili, and today I am thrilled to speak with Evan Greer, a powerhouse trans and queer activist, writer, and musician based in Boston. Evan's journey is a dynamic interplay of musical wit, grassroots activism, and a fervent dedication to justice. She has gracefully evolved her sound from riot folk roots to a more layered indie pop aesthetic with an anarcho-punk soul. Her recent album, Spotify is Surveillance, has garnered praise from NPR, Rolling Stone, and Pitchfork. Beyond her musical endeavors, Evan serves as the director for Fight for the Future, a digital rights nonprofit. An eloquent commentator on TV and radio, Evan passionately advocates for issues related to free speech, technology, and human rights. Hey, Evan. Thank you so much for joining me. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Thanks for having me on. So for me, this interview is about sharing what I love about you with the world. Aww. But also, you know, I know that there are pieces of your story that I don't know a lot about. And I think the piece that I was really thinking about, like, do I actually know how Riot Folk came about and some of these early years of your music life? So I thought we could start there. Yeah, for sure. I mean, for me, music and politics have always been pretty inextricably linked. The very first song I ever wrote was a few days after 9-11. I was a high school student um, and could pretty quickly see that the reaction of our government was going to be a push toward war and violence to meet violence. So yeah, I was kind of starting to get wrapped up in the growing anti-war movement at that time. But it was also when I had started, I picked up an acoustic guitar, I was like learning, you know, I remember like playing that song at my like high school assembly or something like that. Hmm. And like, having a few teachers come up to me and being like, you know, I've been wanting to say something, but like, I was a little afraid to like speak up because like this just happened. Um, And that was sort of just like a window into like, oh, like songs can be powerful. Mm -hmm. And Yeah, I mean, one of the first times I ever performed in front of people was at a big anti-war protest that I helped organize on Boston Common. And that was it for me. Like, I was totally all in on both music and activism. And so when I finally went off to college, you know, I was increasingly starting to be in touch with other musicians that shared those sort of like early left anarchist values that were you know, very active in movements against U.S. imperialism that were very active in the movement around global justice um, following the big protests that helped shut down the WTO in Seattle. And yeah, I just started to meet folks like Ryan Harvey from Baltimore and Adam Rowland. And like we were all sort of solo musicians who were, you know, kind of like bringing forward this like new generation of like protest folk music Um, And that was much less like kind of like, oh, let's all get along, peace, kumbaya, and was more like, we're going to f***ing riot and tear this system to the ground. We started calling ourselves riot folk as like a genre almost. And so, yeah, a few of us had the idea to form a collective to kind of pool the resources from the music that we were making. We were totally, at that time, self-producing everything, recording everything on like cheap microphones in our basements, but then also owning the means of distribution. We spent a lot of time like in people's college, like, you know, computer labs using every CD burner on every PC in like a (laughs) lab with like 20 computers to burn, you know, hundreds and even thousands of of CDRs that we were selling Mm -hmm. or giving away at the time. 
We really rejected the idea of like corporate record labels or even copyright as kind of like a mechanism for controlling the distribution of our music. We kind of bought into that early free culture idea of like music and creativity should be free and we should find other ways to collectively ensure that musicians and artists are compensated for our labor. And really the biggest piece of it was we had a website where we put all of our music up for free download. You know, that's like super common now, right? Like everyone has a band camp or like everyone's music is on streaming services or whatever. But like back then, like that was not a thing that you could just like go to a website and listen to hundreds of songs by like a group of artists. And so it really did like take on a life of its own. And it went a little viral. We had like a cute little logo that was like two people in like bandanas holding hands and holding like banjos and guitars or whatever. And like, that's sort of like the utopian vision of it, you know? Mm -hmm. And then there was a lot of shortcomings of it too. We, we spent a lot of time arguing over like what to do and, and, you know, how to structure our collective. I think for most of us, we've had a big evolution in our politics since then. Mm -hmm. I mean, just to say it, like everyone in that collective was white and it wasn't until later that like, I think we developed a more significant or serious anti-racist analysis. I think we also had, again, we're very into this idea of like music should be free um, without necessarily having a strong analysis of what does that mean for like who gets to make music or who has the privilege to tour or make an album, et cetera. And so I think like we were young, we were idealistic, we had some good ideas. And over time, we also began to interrogate some of our assumptions or, you know, things that we took for granted. I mean, you have so many different facets of of you, you know, so there's this piece. And then, of course, we have your work with Fight for the Future, you know, which is like a whole nother realm. What are some campaigns that are happening right now that you think that we need to be aware of in this work? I mean, for me, one of the reasons I got into this work is because it was so clear to me that the free and open internet as a tool is the only reason that anyone has ever heard my music. And having access to that megaphone was essential for me as an independent artist, as a trans artist at a time when like no one, like Rolling Stone was not writing about trans singer songwriters when I first got started. Now they do. Um, But like that was not a thing in like the early 2000s or whatever. But like the internet was a thing. And so defending that tool and artists' ability to use it is crucial. But the flip side of that is that we've seen how big tech companies and exploitative technologies are very much weaving their way into the music industry and affecting artists negatively in a bunch of ways too. And so I'd say there's maybe like three main things that I think artists should be paying attention to in the technology policy space. So the big one is artificial intelligence. Everyone's talking about it. Um, And Fight for the Future has been pretty prominent on this. We've helped organize a boycott of um, big name artists like Tom Morello and Zach De La Roca from Rage Against the Machine, many others who are boycotting venues like Madison Square Garden that use facial recognition surveillance. And that's actually gotten a bunch of venues to now sign on to commit to saying, we won't use this type of technology in our venue. We want to make sure that people feel safe coming here and know that they're not going to be discriminated against by a racist algorithm. Mm-hmm. So that's a big one. And we do have a campaign, um, banfacialrecognition.com slash venues, where folks can sign on if they want to join the boycott. The other aspect of AI is around generative AI. So, you know, folks definitely were paying attention to the explosion of ChatGPT, but there's also now concerns about like, you can click a button and make a song 
that's borrows from other people's music or artwork. And what does that mean? And I think that we need a lot more complexity in that conversation. There's been what I would argue are sort of overly simplistic narratives, like all AI is theft, for example, mm-hmm. or equating you know an individual artist in their bedroom using an AI tool with a giant corporation like Disney using AI to fire a bunch of people and and use the AI to take their jobs essentially. Right. And I think you know, like with anything else, we need to make the conversation about power. Who has power and who is being exploited? And what we need is a world where artists have some power over our work and over the tools that we use. And then the elephant in the room is Spotify, right? right. Which is incredibly dominant. You basically can't be a musician and not care about your Spotify streams. But Spotify is like Instagram or YouTube or anything else. They run a surveillance capitalist business model that's basically about monitoring what people listen to and using that information to serve ads. And so that business model is fundamentally incompatible with basic human rights and democracy and with artistry, right? Because Spotify doesn't actually care if music is good or bad. They are happy for you to stream lo-fi beats all day, whether they're AI generated or, you know, some studio in Sweden that they hired made them so they don't have to pay royalties. But I think like we're at a moment where we desperately need to um, figure out new models for ensuring that artists can be heard and can be compensated for our labor and to ensure that music isn't getting made to please a robot rather than like for thousands of years, humans have created music for each other. Um, Mm -hmm. that's the future I want. I want us to keep making music for each other, not for some algorithm. That's right. Listen to the full episode of this podcast at therhythmofrebellion.com. Thanks for listening.